Welcome back to Sports and Society after a bit of a hiatus. But uh, Kyle, how you doing this morning, man? I'm doing well. I'm glad to be back and uh, solving all the socio-political problems in sports. So I'm glad we could. Uh, I'm glad the sports world has us back. Maybe it's a good, <laughs> an absurd way to say it. Well, I mean, now that uh, Deadspin is essentially obsolete, we're taking that space. Is what I'm what I'm understanding here. Yeah, that that's my my recent newsworthy item that I wanted to discuss. So All right. that's a good segue into it. All right. Well, what what are you thinking about it? Well, I guess the story is that Deadspin, which is part of a massive conglomerate of pop culture websites. And I don't know how long they've been around, but they definitely carved out a niche for themselves in the non-mainstream, non-ESPN sports Mm. and pop culture world. And existed alongside Grantland and then all the others that are also working to fill that apparently very profitable space. And Deadspin... Not itself, but the larger conglomerate was purchased by a private equity firm recently. And top brass in the private equity and in the administration of Deadspin itself uh, started to throw down these decrees of essentially saying, just cover sports. Don't cover pop culture as much as you are covering it. Which, we could get into that. That's an interesting thing that... Deadspin employees were interpreting it the way they were, and it makes me think that there was more underneath the surface, but mm-hmm. ultimately, uh, the entire staff of Deadspin quit uh, within about a two-week time, uh, and so I think their last employee quit yesterday, her, her final day was two days ago. Uh, so Deadspin, as of today, doesn't exist, um, and I guess it's significant in that it occupied such a known space and it was uh, quite a big name that it existed in that conglomerate along Jezebel and other really well-known sites Um, The Onion is under that conglomerate now and so these writers taking this massive stand there's another side to it wherein you and I may have a different perspective than the Deadspin writers in that we don't love Deadspin (laughs) Um, and so that has been interesting to probably to a very large extent be on the side of the Deadspin writers, but also being like, I still don't love this website. Um, I don't know. What did you make of it? You know, it's um, it has been interesting because I think I have no great love for Deadspin. I don't think that the way that they operate was something that I... Um, wanted to follow all the time but there were certainly things that they were willing to touch that no one else was willing to touch and they may not have done it in a particularly um meaningful way or done it in a way that i approved of but i certainly there were times that i liked that they were willing to operate in that space um and so uh yeah i guess it's just it's particularly interesting to me i i think in terms of what's going to happen next um I think they, if they change, then what they lose their cachet that they had before, um, and so what does that what does that mean long term? And um, 
I don't think they can survive as just another sports site. Um, right. And so it brings me back to that question we asked when we were doing going through all of these of what um, uh, what is uh, the sustainability of some of these platforms? And we thought, mm-hmm. I don't think that either of us thought that we were going to see this implode like it has. But all it took was, you know, a decision, uh, one ownership change and everything hit the fan very quickly. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's just, it shows, I think, in some ways, the fragility of some of these new media companies out here. Right. Yeah, it's an interesting thing for me in that the dynamics between ownership, talent, and writers, and readership is, I, I, I just don't know how much we know about that mm-hmm. dynamic in in this newer age of like just complete online media and a sandwiching together of things that used to take up different pages in your newspaper mm-hmm. uh, and so it, it like changes those dynamics when it's all in one place uh, and when the readership is younger and has different expectations than an older readership uh, it's hard to like pin down from my perspective where leverage and power is in those three dynamics um, and how it, it's also interesting to think about like that three-way relationship exists under every single medium uh, for purveying news or content and it's interesting how <laughs> it, it I don't know you just look at different outlets and find different versions of that dynamic but it's the same one everywhere mm-hmm. um, so I just find that interesting. Well, I think it's, you know, you are your audience with this stuff in some ways. And so I think that that's been, I think we can give them credit for, even though um, it was usually a very puffy thing, mm-hmm. that they uh, they were willing to go to the left in a way that most other folks weren't, um, to the point where I would almost consider their readership to be part of... Um, you know the 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 folks that get uh, outraged about things very easily and so i think that knowing that about their um audience makes it even more of a tone deaf move to push their writers in this way um right. and so just also to see these folks come in that don't understand their product and then decide that they want to change it and in the process lose exactly what they were doing i think that uh, it speaks to just a problem of communication in some ways and uh, mm-hmm. a misunderstanding of what the market is at the moment. Right. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens, but I'm pretty sure they'll find 20 new writers pretty quickly. Yeah, it's not like it's going to go away, away. It's a, <laughs> no. it's a question of, like, you know, the only time I think you and I would go to Deadspin would be when they wrote, something inflammatory or some original piece of journalism that wasn't necessarily something that um, we thought was the height of journalism, but was something that was never going to be found somewhere else. You know, they would, exactly they would write things that again, you know, you wouldn't find anywhere else because they were willing to talk and say things about the NBA or say things about um, uh, anybody that most of these platforms wouldn't allow. And now that you don't have that, 
I mean, as you and I as examples, there's no reason we're going to go to Deadspin for just a sports right. conversation. There's much better yeah. places to go for just a sports conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I've never gone there on my own, but I've been taken there mm-hmm. by like someone referencing a significant or seminal Deadspin piece. Um, yeah. Which is interesting. But what about you? What have you been paying attention to? Um, so the Rugby World Cup ended yesterday. Um, and first off, I just want to say that it's an absolute shame that this gets no attention in the United States. Like, mm-hmm. um, I feel like, uh, and, you know, this is, uh, this is projecting a little bit, but I feel like even the Cricket World Cup got on ESPN's homepage in those mornings at like 6 a.m. when it was starting. Um, yeah. But there's been nothing about the rugby world cup that i've seen on the major platforms um Mm -hmm. but it's still a massive sport and uh south africa won yesterday in a massive upset over um uh england and that's just that south african rugby team is such an interesting proposition and so to hear the captain of the team talking about um you know that south africa is in a really troubled place right now and hopefully this brings some hope for them and and such just it's i found it a really interesting place to be yesterday morning was watching the end of that game and and see, hearing those comments from them about um this being uh, an idea of what south africa can be and and what it might have the potential to be if they can figure out what's going on mm-hmm. it was a very clear example for me of that intersection of sports and society yeah absolutely and that England was in the final against a country they have colonial connections with. Uh, it's fascinating, too, for the same reason. It's fascinating in cricket and soccer. Um, did you get to watch any of the matches? I didn't get to watch any. But I, I watched a little it. bit. No, I yeah. watched a fair amount of highlights, and I watched some of the final yesterday. But the timing is in Japan, so it was just a mm-hmm. really hard time to find uh, time to watch anything. I did appreciate that they created extended highlight videos. Which, I find those really fun. You know, the NBA is doing these now, um, and uh, NBC Sports is doing them for the Premier League, and I find them just to be exactly what I want. And it's not new. I mean, this is what Match of the Day has been doing for years, and it's why they've yep. been so successful. But to have like a 10-minute long highlights with the original commentary over it is just so much better than anything that ESPN is doing right now. It makes me wonder if uh, it does all harken back to match of the day. Mm-hmm. The, that if that uh, is, if my hunch that they were the first and the only one for a really long time uh, doing this and now everybody's doing it because they did it. I wonder if that's true. I wouldn't be know? at all surprised. I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised at all. Gosh, I remember being a little kid and just just in complete awe of Match of the Day. Well, I mean, it was you, so incredible. It still am. It, well, yeah, and yeah. so like you know, when I studied abroad in London, I was like, well, this is how you get in love with this sport. Like you have an yeah. hour where you're really going to dig into it and mm-hmm. digest everything. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas here in America, you know, we have you know, you see 30 seconds of highlights and then you have uh, 15 minutes of talking heads talking about that 15 minutes of highlights. Right. 
Yeah. Well, and you mentioned NBA in reading about what's happening, which is what I, our main topic is for today. It, it is fascinating that it's precisely that piece that I think is really, really significant in this whole story, that that is what the NBA is packaging and commodifying in China, uh, right? Our, our yeah. highlights. It's what mm-hmm. the NBA like lives on. Uh, outside of the United States, in my impression, or at least like the evidence being that like every article about how valuable money-wise the NBA is mentions that what they're packaging are highlights uh, and the imagery surrounding highlights and the individuals in the highlights. Well, it is, and that's, I mean, when they started, that's exactly what they did. They, I mean, they. my understanding is they essentially created... I mean, it wasn't a VHS tape, but essentially a VHS tape with five minutes of highlights from the week's games and sent it to Chinese state television, and then they played it. And that was the relationship <laughs> between the two, which is just, uh, feels like it was 50 years ago, but it was actually like 15 years ago. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, yeah. It's fascinating, too, just this morning going on the NBA page on ESPN, there's like, maybe 15 stories and then you can scroll for a minute and it's all just highlights the bottom of the nba page on espn every day is like 200 highlights from the night before Mm -hmm. Um, and everyone you click on you have to watch a 15 or 30 second ad i feel like you know um maybe this is not true but i feel like you know, you can't, um, it's hard to understand baseball from a highlight perspective. Mm. Um, like I'll give them credit. Like I've been, I didn't get a chance to watch much of the world series, but they, they've been doing some longer videos and I would watch them, but you just, you can't understand the pressure and intensity of a major league baseball game from watching the highlights. Like you have to, since that time between pitches, you have to kind of understand what's happening there. Um, mm. And football, I think, is similar. Uh, I think it's more highlight-driven, but like you just can't understand a full game from the highlights. Whereas NBA, I feel like you can understand the soul of the NBA in some ways through uh, a 15-second clip of a dunk or uh, right. some guy driving and throwing out for a three-pointer or whatever it may be. That that's it's something that they've done a really good job of packaging and telling that story. I mean, I think their Instagram people in the NBA are absolutely phenomenal yeah that is fascinating to think about i don't know if i've ever thought about that but how the aesthetics and significance of a moment as captured in a highlight is so deeply connected with every moment that come before it in a sport like baseball Mm -hmm. and football too and how those earlier, maybe seemingly innocuous moments kind of imbue every single moment thereafter with a certain amount of significance. That mm-hmm. if you don't know what happened in the first inning when, you know, someone checked a runner on first and overthrew the first baseman, right? You don't know that there's a certain amount of pressure in the eighth inning when there's two men on, right? It's like all of a sudden it's a, it's a, it seems like a minor thing, but it's really significant based on what's happened before. Yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating to me the whole watching baseball for like the first time, watching a full game for the first time in a couple of years this year during the World mm-hmm. Series. Yeah, was really fascinating to me. The tension of it, like it is almost unbearable 
to sit there yeah. and watch sometimes. Um, yeah. But then also the amount of weird storylines in there. You know, so-and-so's not got a great arm in left field, and so-and-so <laughs> has, has been yeah. unconfident for the last three times or whatever. It's just fascinating to see how that all plays out. Yeah. I, I That's my argument that playoff baseball is some of the most exciting sports watching there is for that reason. Well, I'm, I will never forget that you told me at some point that you could write a five-page paper on every pitch of a Major League Baseball game. So, <laughs> I love it. I'm glad you reminded me of that very, very nerdy thing I just said. <laughs> um, well, well, anyway, what? Uh, why don't you walk us through what, um, as we understand it, has happened in China with the NBA? Okay. That's a small task yeah Um, yeah that's why i'm asking you to do it here (laughs) okay uh i'll i'll give it a shot uh daryl morey the general manager for the houston rockets a team that previously before daryl morey's action had the largest following of nba team any nba team in china uh tweeted uh, a poster that is in support of the pro-democracy um, uh, advocacy and protests that are happening in Hong Kong. And when he did this, uh, the NBA had a few teams in China on the ground there for exhibition games. And within a few hours of the tweets, uh the Houston Rockets had demanded that he delete the tweet and CCTV in China said they were not going to air the games and many of the vendors that were overseeing the playing of those exhibition games in China uh, immediately started to back out and so it looked like the games weren't going to happen at all. Moreover, and there's hard, it's hard to find information on this, but there's little snippets that have come out that it became like a safety issue for the players that were there. And some of them were like fearing for their safety, uh, which added another layer. But what has really become interesting and fascinating, I think what would be fun to talk about is how comprehensive this issue has become from a sports and society perspective. So in that way, there's like, hundred things that are all fascinating and really interesting and really telling of uh, the world at the moment Uh, and I don't mean that like hyperbolic like it really is telling of what things are happening in the world of significance right now and so the story went on that Adam Silver the commissioner of the NBA his first comment was pretty weak uh, and pretty controversial and in my opinion kind of pathetic Um, and in his defense, uh, up until now, I've only been mostly really, really supportive of what Adam Silver has done. Um, but what is interesting about his comments uh, in that he was seemingly saying, we have a major economic opportunity here in China, and therefore we need to quell our free speech in the United States uh, in the name of making money. And he said that pretty plainly. Uh, he came back with a second comment because people got on him pretty hard for that and said, like, let's be clear, you can still say whatever you want, but keep in mind that it might cost us money in the future. 
Um, and so it has come to this point of where it appears that the NBA is choosing profit over democracy or free speech. Um, and so that, that is coming from an issue in the NBA at a geopolitical level is pretty incredible. <laughs> pretty fascinating um so there's a lot more to it but maybe that's kind of a summation yeah that's very very well done well and it's just to wrap a little bow on the cake um we're still not entirely sure what the ramifications of this are um adam silver said there's already been significant money lost um that's not going to come back 10 cent and uh, some other outlets in China are fl- playing very few games. Um, it's unclear how many games they're actually doing, but they have a contract essentially for everything, but not many of them are available. Um, so it's a uh, it's it's not been resolved, and it's not going to go away. It does seem like China has stepped down their rhetoric on it a little bit mm-hmm. um, because I think they're understanding that they're facing backlash from being – uh, who they are on this, but it's certainly not um, an issue that's going to go away in the next three or five years if we just ignore. This is going to be a consistent problem and thorn, I think, in the NBA's side for that entirety of how long they choose to have this relationship. Yeah, and I think that's a fascinating aspect of it, right? And you and I kind of talked about this earlier, but I can't help but imagine that both sides were having meetings where they were like, okay, what are you going to do? How can we help you with that? And we got to do this. Can you help us with this? Meaning both knew that they had to cater to their base uh, in public, but behind the scenes, I'm pretty sure that like, even CCTV and especially Tencent and Alibaba, these massive Chinese corporations are very friendly with, with entities representing the NBA, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's not like their NBA is going in the room with a, a, a protest sign, right? They're going in there of problem solving. Mm-hmm. How can we get out of this? And so that they're approaching it that way on an issue that is uh, so important to American identity and seemingly so threatening to Chinese identity is where it gets really fascinating. But I do, um, I'll be, uh, give a little bit of a different perspective from you. I don't think that the NBA has kowtowed quite as much um, as they could have in this circumstance. I actually have to give Adam Silver some credit. I think that, um, there's been some stuff that's come out that uh, the NBA was asked to remove Maury from his position and refused to do so. Right. Um, and I, I don't think those communication channels are quite that open in that um, clearly, you know, the NBA made this comment, um, this original comment, um, which a lot of folks, there was a lot of speculation that it would actually have been drafted by the Chinese in some ways, because there were certain language indicators that suggested that that was what the Chinese government wanted to hear. Um, Mm -hmm. But it wasn't good enough. And I think that's what we saw is that that first comment didn't make the Chinese happy. And then the Chinese responded uh, the way they did. And then the NBA is like, well, we can't go any further than that. We can't actually condemn them, which I want to give Adam Silver some credit for standing at least a little bit on principle in that, in that uh, situation. 
So I'm a little more bullish on Adam than you are, I think, at this point. Yeah. Well, also, and that's what is, again, where it becomes a, such a compelling thing to think about and explore from different angles is that it's about degree and it's about mm. spectrum, I think. And so, like, to what extent do we think Adam Silver has gone far enough in his statements? So if you're defending him from an American perspective, you're going to say, well, he defended his general manager and he made it very clear that he is not suppressing free speech in any way whatsoever in the NBA. His players and his employees can say whatever they want. Uh, but he also is not anti-China. And so that's another spectrum thing. Well, like, to what extent are we as individuals and as a collective anti-China? Uh, and to what extent do we really stand with the Hong Kong protesters? Uh, which incorporates another fascinating branch of what does it mean to stand with the Hong Kong protesters? And how does one go about becoming educated about what they are standing for and how it is playing out? and who is doing the standing and how do we feel about that mm -hmm. uh, is a fascinating part of it. Um, well, I think the, perhaps the thing that has been most interesting to me in some ways is less that stuff because I think that uh, one of the reasons I give Adam Silver more credit is because, you know, he's responsible for representing the league. Like, in some mm -hmm. ways he has to do, you know, he has some leeway, but he has to do whatever the league wants him to do. Um, right. And so those owners, you know, I'm sure Joe Sy from the Nets is like yelling in his ear all the damn time, um, which, if I may say, fuck Joe Sy, um, <laughs> my French. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to go there. <laughs> I mean, this guy comes out. Come on now. I mean, we should expect yeah. it, but come on. Um, Let's explain what he did. What, what, what makes you say fuck Joe Sy? Well, so Joe Sy is the co-founder of Alibaba, which is probably the biggest, uh, I, I think you could say maybe even the biggest non-American tech company in the yep. world. Um, yep. And uh, he has just recently become majority owner of the New, New York Nets. And like within an hour of this happening, he's on there like, this is not what's happening. This is not what, let me equivocate and let me talk about how these protesters are actually uh, not protesters they have no reason to protest da, 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 da. just a complete asshole way to be in many ways mm -hmm. yeah i i would ha i've like made a note don't spend too much time talking about josiah because <laughs> because it's so rich for critique and as you mentioned his equivocations are fascinating his revisionist history is amazing like when I first read, so he, uh, within the first couple of days, wrote a Facebook post that essentially attempted to codify every aspect of this issue into like eight paragraphs, short paragraphs, like three sentence paragraphs, and be like, okay, let me explain what everyone is thinking from every angle and what is going on here and by the end of this facebook post this will no longer be an issue uh in that he included three paragraphs on chinese hong kong taiwanese history i was like whoa <laughs> what i mean he tried to explain the entire boxer rebellion 
and like why it's significant and meaningful in this uh, situation. I was like, what in the world? How does how does someone get to that point that they think that was a good idea? Um, and not only a good idea that he thought he was solving problems by doing so. Amazing. Well, it is, and I think, you know, I don't know how much of a role he played in this. I have to think that his was one of the reasons, he was one of the reasons this became such a big deal. Because if we're Mm -hmm. bluntly honest about this, this is only a big deal because China responded to it. If China just never said anything, it wouldn't matter. Yeah. And so, like, this was one tweet. Uh, It's not like uh, it was going to go anywhere, but we see that that China is very touchy about these things right now. And so they went all out in response to it in a way that then made it an issue that it wasn't an issue before. Um, So that's fascinating. But the thing that I think is most fascinating to me is looking at the player response. Um, Yes. Because I think that, you know, like I said, I don't have high expectations of Adam Silver. In some ways, I he has met and um, uh, his my expectations for him, and I still feel fairly positively about him. The players, on the other hand, I am just kind of stunned, not just the players, a couple of the coaches as well, that we would have hoped for, I think, a little bit more about. But this whole line about, you know, First, we've got James Harden saying, we're sorry, we love China. And you're like, what? Okay. That seems very tone deaf. And then mm-hmm. LeBron coming out with these comments about Maury being ill-informed and misinformed about what's going on. No, I'm sorry. You're wrong, LeBron. This is not a right. good look for you. Right. Um, and, of course, we all know I already dislike the guy. But um, uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's just been fascinating in the consistency of it. I mean, there was even – I think I was reading this morning about um, – Blake Griffin talking about, you know, there's like a lot of things I don't understand, so I don't want to get involved, and I just hope no one gets hurt. And it's like, what is this? Why why does everyone feel like this is so hard to understand? Right. Um, but it makes me wonder who's leading the narrative on it. Because it feels to me like there's got to be someone that has gotten in all their ears, or there have been conversations where there have been collective decisions made about how we're supposed to respond to this as NBA superstars. Mm-hmm. So that that's tricky for me because part of me always stands with players in kind of like a union fashion. Right? That's like where my heart takes me uh, is to stand with the players because they're the labor. Uh, LeBron himself is like maybe needs to be separated from that uh, in that I feel that probably needs to be interrogated a little bit. Um I want to, if I'm going to give those players as much space as possible, I'm going to say that, well, this is kind of complex Um, in some ways, right? There's a version of the story that I would argue is pretty complex uh, that does change with one's understanding of history. this is throwing out Josiah's attempt at a pathetic revisionist history, but um, I mean, seriously considering like the historicity or all the different versions of the story that got us to this point, I feel like is part of it. More than that, I of course think Laura Ingram's shut up and dribble is discriminatory, racist and elitist and embarrassing that anyone would say that. But I also, like, I don't know if I have expectations for 
NBA players to be able to comment on every geopolitical issue. Now, the other side of that is like, okay, the NBA is a $10 billion endeavor. NBA China is worth $5 billion. And this is a matter of life and death for a lot of people. And so, yeah, if you're going to play in the NBA and if you're going to make billions of dollars off of what's happening in China, you have more than a responsibility to be educated on this. And if it's not the player's responsibility, then it's the NBA's responsibility to educate their players on this and say, here's what you can say. You, you, here are your options. Here's your information. Like, It's a, a massive uh, miss by the NBA at large here is kind of where I ultimately land while still having some sympathy for players as, as individuals. Maybe. I, mean, I don't I, know. <laughs> I get it. And, like, I'm yeah. not going to sit here. I don't. Uh, I don't feel like this is, well, maybe I do. I don't know. It's, um, I don't want to stand here and just shake down these players and say you're, you're terrible or or whatever for not making this stand. But I do think they've invited it on themselves in some ways. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, that first day after when James Harden says, you know, this stupid comment about, no, we're sorry. We love China. Like, you know, like there's a way in that moment to say like, you know, we're just not going to comment on that right now or, right. you know, and I think the same with LeBron, like there's a way to say like, you know, uh, we don't, we didn't appreciate the way Maury handled this or whatever, but to say like this misinformed bullshit, like that for me is like, I'm sorry, but this is a pretty clear line about a group of people that are being, and like, so, and then it goes to another level for me. Like, so even if you think the Hong Kong thing is complicated, which um, there are elements of it that are, and I'll admit that. But in the end, I don't think it's that complicated. Like there's a a body that has an immense amount of power right. that is subjugating another group of people that wants to get their voice heard. Um, right. And it's pretty clear how that is going down. Um, but even if you like say that's complicated, I don't want to touch that. The stuff that's happening with the Uyghur population is not complicated. Right. And th- right. at this point, after two days, you know that there's no way that you don't know that information. Uh, and right. so for you to come out and make these tone-deaf conversations, comments at that point, I do feel like it's something that we need to indict you for. And I'm not going to hold you to the same level of responsibility that I do the NBA because it's not like – you know, you know, you're an individual. I'm going to forgive you more quickly than I do a corporation. Right. Um, but at the same time, uh, you're not off the hook. Like you're, um, there's a very clear responsibility we, as individuals that reside in this world, have to um, take adv- take care of and look to support those other individuals in the world that are in crisis and struggling at the moment. Right. Um, and so I just, uh, I. Uh, I think I'm deeply disappointed um, in, in LeBron and the other players, but it's also something where I understand that it's a very conflicted thing because, I mean, in the end, they're also talking about tons of their own money on the table, and I don't know how I would respond in the same situation either. Mm-hmm. Well, and so that's where I think I would share that there was a lot, I felt a lot of dissonance in my, I, I it it served to change my impression of where the NBA was, and so maybe I was like foolish and naive previously, and this is just aligning me to reality. But I want to have faith in the progressivism of, of the NBA, 
And so in that way, this was a little bit shocking to me. Um, in particular, LeBron. I don't want to focus too much on LeBron, but I was like, man, this was a missed opportunity, dude. Mm-hmm. Like, you missed a really good opportunity to uh, keep growing and expand into a new space. Um, and it, it was just, it, it felt like a whiff, and it felt like... Um, yeah, it, it felt like it was going against the momentum they had. Um, and I, I think there is a way to keep the momentum and without going on complete strike against China. Right? So, but it, it, it necessitates a lot of nuance. Yeah, and I, I completely agree with you. So there's two... Um there's two things that come to mind for me with this, and one of them just flew away from my head. Oh, um, did you listen to Ramona Shelbourne's piece about the Clippers, um, Donald Sterling stuff? I listened to the first two episodes. I haven't finished it. So it's so good, and I highly recommend it to anyone that's out there. Um, but there's a, I heard a follow-up podcast with J.J. Reddick where he has talked about how that he and the other players have talked to each other since about it as a missed opportunity. Yeah. They had an opportunity to make a stand and they didn't. Um, and they now look back on like, damn, we should have, we should have made taken that opportunity. Um, so I think that there's going to be an element of that then as we look forward. But I, and I think that it's partly because they just don't see things. Um, like I don't think LeBron, he's so sheltered in some ways in his life. Mm -hmm. And I, that's a, you know, it's not like it's always been that way, but in the last 10 years, like he has surrounded himself with people that he trusts and that he wants to be around. And when you do that, and when you have the power to do that, it ultimately shelters you from certain things in the world. And I think that's part of what we're seeing here mm-hmm. as well. Uh, but right. then the the last angle of it that I wanted to push out there is that I do think it's it's worth, and this is where I ultimately... I'm still going to support these players and everything. And that is in that I think it's similar to stuff we've seen for years. And we have lost some of this complexity in our modern um, political conversations that, um, you know, we expect you to be. There's a quote from Obama this week about how yeah. the young woke folks think that we need uh, intellectual purity and that that's not what we need to be looking for. And I do feel. Like that resonates a bit for me. Like I don't need all of my candidates to be completely consistent with what I want them to be. Right. Um, and so I think there's a, I mean, like we're really left leaning folks. We're big supporters of UAW and uh, folks like this, but at the same time, UAW is wildly complicated and yeah. they have some immigration standpoints that we would not agree with. And they have some, uh, positions on things that we don't agree with you know and there's politicians running that uh with stances that we don't agree with that we're going to vote for because we understand that these are complex issues and we need to get behind that and i think it's part of what we're seeing is just that it's um the nba come down off that hero pedestal and become more of a practical advocate in some ways and i don't think that's the worst thing in the end of the day Mm mm-hmm I don't know. Apparently, I feel more strongly about this than I thought I did when we started the podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm with you, and I think one of my key takeaways or attempt at a conclusion is uh, public conversation Mm. and how we address complexity. 
in the extent to which we have a capacity for maybe a deafness with complexity. And what I read in Joe Sai and what I read in LeBron's comments and others' comments is an inability to have a complex conversation. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting or I, I don't have answers for is like, okay, how do we get better at that? Um, and what role or what sort of leadership can Adam Silver in particular take in that way? And why I like Adam Silver is that I think he is maybe intangibly taking steps in that direction. Mm-hmm. Because often when I read what he says or hear him interviewed, I hear a valuing of complexity. Um, and so in that way, I, I, I really support Adam Silver. Uh, kind of how you purvey that to individuals within a broad collective like the NBA is probably much more difficult. Um, but nonetheless, is, is I just think even in light of Obama's comments that part of it resonated with me and part of it really frustrated me. Mm-hmm. And he sounded like an old white dude. <laughs> um, was I, it, that, that aspect of it, of like how to have public conversation right now. Um, well, I think I mean it's. I think we're seeing it everywhere. I look at you know Twitter has banned political ads, and so now we're all furious with Facebook. But that's mm-hmm. not like Twitter is this almighty shape of goodness. It's not like Jack Dorsey is suddenly an amazing individual for taking this stand. There's still immense complexity, as you say, in those right. in those places. Right. So next week we'll be talking about the theory of deliberative democracy and how we can implement it uh, in the United States and elsewhere. And how historiographical approaches to neoliberalism say a lot about geopolitical sovereignty. (laughs) Jesus. Honestly, too, my thing I'm looking forward to or paying attention to is related (laughs) things. Um, um, Hamilton, F1 driver, has come out as an environmentalist. Hmm. Uh, He wants to be carbon neutral by uh, the end of 2020, which at first glance is laughable. It's like you drive an F1 car for a living uh, and you do it in 21 cities around the world. Uh, carbon neutrality might be difficult for you. On the other hand, there's like an argument out there that's like, well, hell yeah, here we go. We've got another celebrity at the pinnacle of what neoliberalism makes possible. And if you believe that we can attack from within, then this is exactly what any environmentalist would want is someone right there in the heart of it all pushing back from the inside. Uh, And so it creates an interesting dynamic of like, how does one feel about uh, Hamilton becoming an environmentalist? Um, and I'll use this as an opportunity to plug Margaret Renkel, uh, an author uh, from Alabama that has a weekly column in the New York Times. But she recently wrote just a really beautiful piece uh, about um, essentially shaming those that are making attempts to do better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how we shouldn't do that and how that's not helpful. And so I'm applying Margaret Rankle to Hamilton in my interest in F1 and that today he's going to win his sixth world championship. And so if you're an environmentalist, you have to decide, like, 
is it a good thing that we've got Hamilton on our side? Well, this is where it comes back. Uh, you know, the same thing we saw this week with Greta Thornburg and Leonardo DiCaprio getting this picture taken together, and all of a sudden, how yeah. can you support that? Well, you know, and I think I come back to Roxane Gay and her amazing bad feminist book about mm-hmm. how we don't have to be. Uh, none of us are right all the time, um, mm-hmm. and it's okay to promote these things and not be totally there all the time. I mean. Theoretically, we should never be doing this if we're environmentalists, right? Um, the power that my computer is using and it's encouraging right. you to listen to things. Like, there's a reason we could argue that we shouldn't be doing this, but right. um, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing it um, and that it doesn't give us something as well. And, you know, there's just, I, it's complex. Yes. Lean into the complexities <laughs> of it. Yeah. What about you? What will you be paying attention to? Um, I will be paying attention to my beloved Arsenal and really hoping that Unai Emery gets fired. Um, Is it really that bad? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Fair. Um, I and it's I am not one of these folks that jumps on this bandwagon early, and I think I don't know what it is exactly, but um. The lack of enthusiasm around the team, the lack of, for a guy that's a tactician, his poor tactics, yeah. um, they're just poor play this year. I think it's, he's got to go. Um, mm-hmm. And his tone deafness, I think, is the other mm. part of it. So once you develop an antagonistic relationship with your fans, I don't know where you go from there. Yeah, it's over. Yeah. On the flip side, I'll be following Boris Johnson's continued attempt to um, look like the biggest ass in the world while still winning an election. So, incredible. Sixty-point lead. Jeremy Corbyn, yep. you've got to go, man. You're Seriously. a problem. You're this, a this, major problem. This is the same conversation, right? I mean, intellectually, you and I probably have no problem with Corbyn, but clearly there is a problem with Corbyn, and he's got to go at this point. Yes. Talk about tone deaf. Yeah. Oh, my. Anyway, well, thank you all for listening this week. Thank you, Kyle, for the time, man. And yeah, we'll, it's fun to be back. It is. We'll be back at some point in the future.